Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means. We'll explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. So, Victor, we started this podcast a little over a year ago, tackled a lot of topics. But today, I think we're going to dig back into the archive to pick out a few of our favorites that are both our favorites just from conversations we've had, but also some of the most critical topics that we should be continuing conversations about in 2018. So even though we talked about a lot of topics, there's a central theme that runs across them, which is it used to be true that leaders focused on their internal operations and making that hum go well, become most efficient was the game. Mm -hmm. And now we're at a time and place where external dynamics dominate decisioning. And whether that is a comment about the changing behaviors and expectations and tolerance levels of customers, their travel behavior, disruption from within the market, disruption from outside the respective mm-hmm. markets. There's a theme of leaders today have to be able to anticipate a market that in some cases they've never seen before right. and be able to understand the consequences, which in some cases can be dire. We're looking at that now in retail. Mm-hmm. And some of the long-term consequences that might be subtle, but almost like tectonic plates, ultimately sort of change the nature of the landscape, which you might see in banking and in insurance. So it's it's an interesting time where the external dynamics, again, sort of dominate the thinking. And, you know, the question is how how well do they perceive it, anticipate it, accept it, and then act on it? So why don't we go through some of the um, highlights? Sounds good. So one of the topics we tackled in this podcast was emotion, the fact that human beings are emotional. Yeah, it's funny because it, it's this is a basic truth of advertising is that too, I want to appeal to someone's emotional state because I do believe intrinsically people make decisions emotionally or, or many decisions emotionally. Mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing is that that basic truth sort of got lost along the way and it's now reconnecting itself back to how companies think of their customers away from segments and demographics into emotional beings. So let's take a listen to James McQuivy and Anjali Lai as they discuss customers and emotion. So James, where are we in the science of emotion? You know, you've asked a massive question with that. It's an exciting environment right now because we are learning after decades of thinking that we understood what emotion was or even where it happens in the brain or what it does in our lives. We thought, oh, we're really sophisticated. We get this. Well, we don't. Here's here's the bit. If I could just say this is the thing we've learned that has surprised us the most in the last just few years. It's that emotions don't just respond. You know, our our tendency to believe as human beings that your brain is this organism that receives input all the time and our emotions like respond. Like, oh, I'm mad at you for saying that or that thing made me scared. And then those emotions motivate us to go do something, to run or embrace something or whatever the case might be. That's the way we've thought of emotion for. Ever. So the idea that advertising would be, I will do something in an ad or something to evoke an emotion that didn't otherwise exist. I'm going to create something new. Exactly. You're saying that that has what's changed. I'll put this stimulus in front of you. You'll receive it. Your emotions will either embrace it or not. And I either, you know, some percent of my customers got that message and felt emotion and great, we're done. And hence you have Super Bowl ads that are full of sometimes over the top <laughs> schlocky emotions. But What's really happening is that our brains don't wait for input to start responding with emotion. In fact, we are constantly predicting 
not only the thing that's going to happen next in our environment. So the easy example is if you know, you're next to a field where they're playing ball and all of a sudden the ball heads your way and instinctively you flinch. And you think, oh, wow, I have really good peripheral vision. I, re I reacted to that ball coming my way. It was going to hit me in the head, and I moved, and it didn't hit me. Good for me. That, that kind of prediction is what your brain is doing all the time. Could this hit me? Could that run over me? Could that person be mean to me? But emotional prediction is the piece that we didn't know was happening until very recently, that actually our emotions are pre-testing. How am I going to feel in this interaction? Am I going to feel nervous, happy, sad, uh, loved, whatever might occur? And we bring that whole complex set of predictions to every interaction, whether it's an interpersonal interaction, an interaction with a brand, with a product, with a commercial on television. We are, we are hosting an arena of possible emotional responses that our brain is ready to trigger at any moment. And sometimes triggers incorrectly. That's interesting for science. But from an from a brand's perspective, from a marketer's perspective, what's happening is that sometimes I see in my emotional prediction engine that that brand is going to make me happy and I feel like it's going to make me happy and then the brand does make me happy. And that moment of happiness isn't just, oh, the brand made me happy. It is, I believed it would make me happy and it did. So Anjali, in previous episodes, We've talked about emotion, the theory of emotion, the science of emotion, but it, it appears in this conversation that the data is showing us that they're, that consumers have a desire for that emotional engagement. But are we moving from sort of a desire to a full-on expectation? Yeah, I think that we have reached a point where the idea that emotion is critical to um, not just a successful customer experience, but also is fundamental to how and why consumers make decisions and, and um, exhibit certain behaviors, that, that is no longer debatable, right? That That's sort of almost table stakes. That's really fundamental. Um, right now, the key is for um, business leaders to identify the nuance in how emotion drives their consumers' behaviors based on their customers' levels of empowerment. So uh, that means not only identifying the core motivations that make their empowered customers distinct or that maybe they can sort of map or use to organize um, their customers and prospects, but also what are the key emotional levers to pull to trigger particular behavioral outcomes that draw customers into an experience and um, keep them coming back. But this is not just an interesting point, but an economic point. These more advanced segments have significant buying power, and they've sort of proven that they will buy. And on the flip side of that, they'll also proven that they will churn. Yeah, and uh, so two points, actually, that come to mind on that. So what's interesting and what is almost a little bit surprising that we found in the data when constructing the empowered customer segmentation is that, um, yes, the progressive pioneers, right, so the more, most empowered, most sophisticated group, um, tends to be most affluent. They tend to have the greatest purchase power, but they're actually followed by the convenience conformer. So the third most empowered group um, tends to have the second highest uh, purchase power um, after progressive pioneers. And again, it varies because income isn't a variable that is built into the segmentation. Um, it varies according to a particular customer group of a certain brand or according to the market, um, but that tends to be the pattern that we see, um, which is sort of an interesting point because it shows that empowerment, right, in theory or in concept, isn't necessarily correlated to income or to affluence. Again, it's really a function of motivation or emotion. And the other thing I was going to mention is that 
Um, what's important is uh, when applying this, this sort of framework and really kind of putting it into action is to um, have a company identify the relative profitability and risk of each individual segment. So progressive pioneers, for instance, may be much easier to attract um, or to acquire because they are, as we've discussed already, driven by this um, interest and, and need for, for novelty. Um, they're willing to experiment, but the flip side of that means that they're also harder to retain versus convenience conformers, um, because their behavior changes far more slowly, um, will be harder to acquire, but possibly easier to retain. Um, so that's sort of a business decision that then has to be weighted um, in the context of a company's customer base. So one of the things that we explored this year is how CX is doing. I mean, CX was envisioned as a major strategy to drive growth. But I think most companies found CX to be harder than they might have reckoned with because it had to deal with two things. One is kind of interpreting and then designing experiences for emotional beings. And two is sort of how to catalyze internal change that can be hard, in some cases, deep-rooted. So Rick Parrish, to your point, Victor, touches on both of those dynamics, but also the financial implications of the evolving customer expectations that are out there today. You can't take the same old business and just layer a a thin patina of customer-centric technology over the top of it and have a customer-obsessed company that provides transformative breakaway customer experiences. Uh, It's just not going to work. Yes, technology is a key tool for doing this, but you're also going to need to transform the way you do business behind those tools. Otherwise, again, you're just going to keep doing the same old thing. It's going to be new technology on the front end, but it's going to be the same failing business. But Rick, aren't people just pissed? Like, aren't customers just annoyed or aggravated or mad at the current state of experiences today? (laughs) Yeah, they are. More and more people are, are pissed off. It, things should be better now. It's 2017. Yes, we don't have flying cars, but at least we should have better customer experiences. Right? Uh, but part of the problem here is that companies tend to focus on the loudest voices in the room, you know, the squeakiest wheels. And so the angriest customers are the ones who get their problems addressed. And what that does is that locks companies again into this find and fix. You know, find the the loudest yeller, fix his or her problem, and find the next one, fix his or her problem. And what that does is that stops them from leveling things up again to this level of of systematic, efficient customer experience management uh, in which they're able to address this systemically across their enterprise. And, you know, the best way to do that is is not by focusing on, you know, the the loudest, angriest yellers, uh, but oftentimes by focusing on the people who just have sustained, underwhelming experiences time and time and time again before they get angry. The problem is companies don't bother to try to identify those people. Those aren't the people who angrily fill out surveys. Those aren't the people who angrily call contact centers. Uh, but by that point, it's too late. You know, mm-hmm. um, The great mass of, of customers is getting angry, uh, but they, they, um, uh, they don't necessarily make the loudest noise in the room. Yeah, and I think it also goes to understanding the nuance of emotion, right, and those negative emotions. So it's not just are you happy, are you angry, but what are the things in between that you as an organization should be identifying as negative or, on the flip side, positive emotions that you can exploit. Yeah, yeah, and in the TX index, as you know, you know, we we look at we look at oh, geez, dozens of different emotions, not just you know happy or sad. 
And what we find is that it's not necessarily those, um, those most extreme emotions, you know, the, the, the rage and the joy uh, that, that affect customer loyalty the most. It's things like, uh, I'm just disappointed. I'm just, I'm just underwhelmed. Mm-hmm. I'm just frustrated time and again, rather than this, you know, single moment of rage. And on the other hand, positive experience is not some sort of rapture uh, or delight. It's the more subtle emotions that are sustained over time that have the biggest impact on loyalty. But again, you know, companies aren't focused on those. They're focused on, on things like happy and angry. And that's, that's, that's too black and white. Someone who's angry is relatively easy to perceive. They've called you. They're yelling at you. Right. right? We've all been there. Um, but the person who's disappointed may simply disengage quietly and, to your point, quietly wander away. And there's no way to sense that. There's nothing that just happened other than they stopped doing something. So unless you can sense that human being was engaged and is now sort of falling off the radar, unless you have some way to catch that as it's going on and re-engage in some capacity, they will wander away. And I think we're starting to see that in some of the churn information we're getting. And it goes back maybe to Jen, your question, which is, sure, the customers are pissed, but at some point in time, the CFO is going to get pissed because they're starting to see some risk show up in their business because they can't catch up to this evolving customer expectation. Yeah. And of course, that's why measurement and customer research are two of the six competencies of CX management, right? You know, these are these two of these big enterprise level uh, competencies that you've got to master in order to be able to sense those people, just the ones you were talking about who just sort of quietly wander away and who bring their friends with them. Uh, as they go somewhere else. Uh, most companies can't sense those people. You've got to be able to sense those people so you can identify the real systemic problems rather than just chasing those loud voices. So earlier I introduced Rick as sort of, you know, under the concept of CX driving growth, but the flip side of that, of course, is poor CX or just sort of moderate CX can often excite churn, whether that's revenue churn or customer churn. And Maxie Schmidt talks a little bit about sort of the risks of not fully executing or successfully executing ACX strategy. She also discusses how industries aren't created equal and that certain organizations need to prioritize different things to drive desired outcomes. So Maxi, growth is a glass half full kind of thing, which is if I improve it, I will see a net increase in spend per customer and overall spend. But the money is not new. It's just coming from somebody else, which is if I'm not making those same gains, I can interpret this as a, a direct and immediate attack on the PL as I speak. This is revenue churn happening now. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Most industries are so mature that it's, that it's a market share play here. And so definitely, whenever we talk about the upset of customer experience, what people should be hearing is the risk of loss by not keeping up with competition. And I think this is something to be, to be thinking about when, when you think of customer experience. Improving customer experience is really getting your right to market share. Mm. So you need mm. to be better than your competitors at customer experience in order to get a higher market share. Yeah, this changes the meaning of CX a bit because the argument would be CX is tied to growth, which is a net positive. The The other argument is if you're the 50% who's not grounded in driving those experiences that affect spend, you're actually probably realizing right now revenue churn that you could control or you could mitigate against, but you're not. You're falling behind and left untended, you will fall increasingly behind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know what, in my observation, what the reason for that problem is, is that many companies are still way too focused on the acquisition. So churning the acquisition wheel, getting in new customers, that's what they report on, that's really important, but not really caring what happens to the customer once that customer is acquired. Think of, of telco companies. 
those are prime examples of having trained their customers that they need to defect so that they can be an acquisition target again, so that they get the good... Um, the deals. The and, deals, yeah, the promotions. Right. And that's this, the cycle of, of always churning through your customers, which isn't going to be profitable in the long run. Right. Yeah, it's interesting how the companies will go out there and they, you know, T-Mobile is a classic one and the wireless, as you mentioned, which is it sort of tore down the switch costs. It sort of says, if you have an existing contract, we'll buy it out essentially. Mm-hmm. And that sort of destroyed the switch costs. But it didn't mean that the experiences were better in T-Mobile. It just meant that they sort of won that net share game. But they still have to retain that same customer because now the switch costs are down for everybody. That's it's a very becomes a very liquid market in that regard. Exactly. Yep. So Maxie, I don't want to lose the idea that these dynamics play differently in different industries. So either I'm a leader that wants to drive a deeper wedge between myself and competitors, or I'm being forced to play catch up, as you described. Is the idea in focus of experience design the same among industries? And you mentioned earlier, I'm going to focus on certain customer segments differently than others. Does it does it play the same way in different industries, or is there different dynamics at play? Mm-hmm. We found actually something really interesting in the research. So when, when firms think about the relationship of customer experience and revenue, somehow there's this implicit assumption that it's it's a linear lockstep relationship. Meaning, if I fix something, I'll get a gain. I fix something, I'll get a gain. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And no matter where where I start, it's always the same gain. And that's that's kind of an implicit assumption that I've that I've seen um, um, firms make. And that assumption is true. For for example, for retail, it's true. It's true for auto and home insurance and for a number of industries. But there are industries for which that isn't true. So, for example, in some industries, you see more of a an exponential pattern. That means the higher the customer experience index scores goes, the overproportionately bigger the revenue increases will be. That's, for example, uh, banks. So the sky really is the limit for customer experience improvements. You also see the opposite effect of that. You see in wireless providers, for example, a diminishing returns of customer experience. So the revenue increase gets smaller as you increase customer experience index scores. And that, that pattern is so important to understand because that directly tells firms where to invest money. So you can argue in today's market, there's two big dynamics that, that are sort of overarching deciding the fate of companies. The first one is customers and the next one is digital or technologies. Yeah, and, and certainly there was a, a lot of hype around specific technologies like automation, blockchain, and AI or artificial intelligence. In the first cut, JP Gounder sort of explores the future robotics. I mean, moving ourselves from IQ to EQ to RQ, or robotics quotient, and actually trying to suss out what is the true economic impact of robotics, and what does it mean to the way companies work. So here's JP. Earlier you said, what kind of products and new markets are form of anyone's guess? And I want to come back to that because the innovation is kind of the responsibility of the CEO and the leadership team because they have to marshal this automation to be first to market or at least be in market with some of these new experiences that people right now can't imagine. So what if I'm one of those people, how do I start thinking about it? How do I start tooling myself up to sort of go at new products and new markets that just simply don't exist right now? Right. I mean, of course, that is a very tall uh, order when we say, yeah. well, we're going to create an entirely new market. But if you are a large, global, you know, billion dollar plus kind of company, um, you need to start experimenting. Now, you might start small. You might start in a very specific area. Um, you may run some pilots and trials and test out that business value. But ultimately, I do believe that this is the case. I mean, this is the world of, you know, digital predators and digital prey. Yep. Uh, and in some sense, if you don't invent the future as a lighthouse customer, you will be eaten by it at some point. 
it's always hard and tricky to figure out the exact time frame. Um, I but, see, but, a lo- but it has to be now part. This innovation cycle has to be a routine part of the business. It can't be the exception or the intervention. Yeah, and and you know. For some organizations, innovation is kind of a hobby yeah. on the side, and innovation needs to be more strongly woven through this, and automation is a key part of that. You know, I see companies um, in the financial services sector struggling with this. There are a lot of fintech startups who are using AI tools, and the big players are saying, well, we don't even do that. Uh, so they either need to partner with or acquire or figure out a way to do that because they're they're not yet doing a great job of it. But, you know, this is a great example. You'll see more and more investment in robo-advisors, mm-hmm. customer-facing, scalable intelligences that can really help you uh, as a customer um, at a price point that you couldn't afford unless you were very wealthy before. Solves a customer problem, great investment, learnings for the future. So, JP, let's return back to the numbers for a second. Due to automation, your forecast says there's a 17% job loss going forward and a 10% gain, so a, point, a difference of seven points. By 2027. Right. But that's strictly from the standpoint of automation. And that that does not sort of consider sort of the generation of things like an app economy where innovation creates things that can't leave. We just can't see yet. So is that the right way to look at the numbers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, on the one hand, that net 7% job loss from automation is a very big number. It's tantamount to what we saw in the Great Recession. It's nothing to be trifled with. But on the other hand, you know, as you referenced, there are adjacent technologies that are creating opportunities for innovation, whether it's the app economy or the Uber economy or however we want to think about it. The key point is something will need to fill that 7% gap. So this is a, a big topic. This is talking about the fundamental nature of our economy and the role of innovation, the role of technology, and the cool world of robots. Um, so in your mind, what does it all mean? What it all means, I think, for our executive listeners in particular is that you need to start taking seriously the idea of having a strategy for automation. I think at this point, um, people at the executive level are, are sort of overwhelmed with uh, you know, prescriptions. Well, we need to take into account IoT, and we need to take into account innovating better, and we need to take into account the cloud and whatever. All of these things are pretty deeply in, interrelated on the topic of automation, which automation takes all of those technologies and puts them into a system that creates its own momentum. If you don't have a board-level discussion about this, much more frequently than you are today. If you don't have a way of sort of making sure that this gets throughout the the organization, it isn't just a hobby that you talk about once a year. Unless you have a plan for how your human resources department is going to intermingle AI-based workers with human workers, that's the digital workforce of the future. It's quite mixed. If you don't have these things in place, you're going to lag. You're not going to make the right investments at the right time, and you're going to get left behind. In our next segment, analyst Martha Bennett takes us through really deciphering the hype versus reality of blockchain, blockchain technology, use cases, and where the opportunities really lie with that specific technology. Start with a use case. What is the problem that you're trying to solve or what idea would you like to pursue? And then ask you know, if, and then ask yourself some very simple questions like, do multiple parties need access to the same data? Do they need to update that data? Do they need a reasonable degree of assurance that the data hasn't been tampered with? And the two main points, 
is there new existing technology that can do it for you? And very importantly, are there good reasons for not wanting to have one single central party that actually runs it on your behalf? But yeah, that's absolutely the way to set about it. Since we're in this period of time where blockchain is very new or even the technology doesn't exist in some cases, what should organizations be thinking about or acting upon? That's, again, a very good question and whether I'm asked frequently. In particular, when companies feel that their resources are stretched already, they haven't got enough people working in R&D um, or don't even have an R&D department. And so I always say, really, look at what it may, may mean to you strategically. Just forget about today. What might your company look like in five years? Where could the threats come from? Where, where would you, your opportunities lie? And then see how this technology would fit into it. And depending on your conclusions, because you may just say, you know, if somebody would like me to participate in a blockchain in five years' time, okay, fine, come along, ask me to participate. So keeping a watching brief is perfectly fine. Um, if you have some resource to spare, then it's also fine if you just experiment a little internally. Obviously, keep your ears and eyes open to see what's happening in your industry. Watch what the consortia are doing. Um, if you want to become actively involved, um, leveraging one of the blockchain tech stacks, that is something that a lot of companies are doing, but it's not obligatory unless you really see the importance and opportunity for your business. Don't do it. But what is, there's also a unique opportunity that we don't usually get with um, an emerging technology that um, for companies who have the appetite and the skill, you can actually become actively involved in shaping how this technology develops, how the capabilities of that technology come along in order to meet the requirements of your industry. And that you can only do by really joining one of those consortia and contributing to the code and helping develop those governance frameworks. But it's a unique opportunity. One of the hottest topics in 2017 and still today is AI and how businesses are taking advantage of the tech to gain efficiencies and enhance customer experiences. But there's an ethical question that Brandon puts forth, which is some of the early incarnations of AI are putting companies at risk. Mm -hmm. Here's Brandon. Is that what happened in some of the, I would call them, high-profile worst practices in the market? I'm thinking Google Photos and Amazon Prime um, in, in sort of not taking into account the ethical components of um, the machine learning or AI in those examples. Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. And you bring up two um, closely related examples, but they demonstrate two different types of bias that can be introduced into a into a model using machine learning. So in the in the Google case uh, with Google Photos, there was a uh, programmer in Brooklyn who uploaded his photos into Google's Google Images, and the photos were classified, and it came back with a number of accurate classification, and then a picture of himself and a friend classified as gorillas. And now, of course, Google didn't intend to build a 
racist algorithm. But what they what they also didn't do is they didn't take a diverse enough sample set of data to train their algorithm to recognize the faces of people of color. Um, and so what ended up happening was uh, a racist outcome. And and of course, you know, this was highly publicized and um, and was a hit on Google's reputation. And you know, their fix to that was just to not categorize anything as gorillas anymore in the short term. Now, in the longer term, they've cobbled together in data scientist terms a corpus or a large collection of data with labeled images of people of color to train that algorithm to be better. But there, that's true algorithmic bias. The problem was that Google's training data, the data that they used to teach the machine to recognize images, wasn't diverse. It didn't reflect the reality of the world that that, uh, that model would be used upon. So that's, that's algorithmic bias. The Amazon problem is, is, is a little bit different. So uh, the, the case you're referring to with Amazon was when they rolled out same-day delivery service, I think, in um, 26 or 27 major metropolitan areas. They did it by zip code. And in a number of these metropolitan areas, um, it was only rolled out to predominantly white zip codes and not predominantly black zip codes. I think Atlanta was one of the worst offenders where 96% of white residents in Atlanta um, would be eligible for same-day delivery and only 41% of black residents. So there was a real um, obviously a real disparity there. Of course, Google did not intend to do this. They were looking at zip code and looking for where the highest density of current Amazon Prime customers were. But when you introduce something like zip code into an equation where it can act as a proxy for race, you might end up getting a racially biased outcome, which is what happened um, in this case and happens in many cases. And that's the result of something called redundant encoding. And redundant encoding is best exemplified by if you were to ask people, are you a single parent? Well, you're not asking people, are you male or female, but 82% of single parents are female. So by asking that question and using that in a model, you're actually using a proxy for gender. This is a much more difficult uh, problem to attack uh, when you're modeling and probably shouldn't be the data scientists making these decisions because ultimately you're going to be um, changing uh, data to, or, to arrive at a more just outcome. How much of this is strictly the immaturity of the marketplace, or is there some inherent complexity to this equation that even in a mature space we would expect to see sort of the same thing? Yeah, there is, uh, you know, a lot of this is the immaturity of the market. I think from the, the point of view of, you know, rolling out these products and services with the disparities um, existent without first picking up on that and, and, and identifying that, that speaks to the immaturity of the market. But um, I'm not sure that maturity will end up solving a lot of these questions. And that first uh, example with um, the incomplete data that resulted in algorithmic bias, most data scientists will tell you it's really, really difficult to get a training set of data that looks exactly like the larger population you're going to use uh, an artificially intelligent system on. So data scientists look for something called IID, um, independent and identically distributed training data. And in a perfect world, you'd have that. But in a lot of places, and, and here in the States is a good example, um, oftentimes the, the data samples you have on racial minorities are smaller and and also less less accurate. So it's harder to get that, um, that IID data you need need um, to create an unbiased model. So you have to do, um, you have to do further due diligence on your data um, to ensure that your models are complete. 
So your two examples that sort of showcase the issues of IID and redundant encoding pointed at the pressure on the data to serve a primary interest in making the algorithm work as intended. How far along are we in building those data sets? And then if I look out five years, is that just one of those things where we'll never be perfect, so we'll always sort of have that ethical thing hanging over our heads? Well, the short answer to the question is yes. I do think that the ethical sort of Damocles is going to continue to, to hang over R and, and companies' heads. Now, there are people working very hard at figuring this out. And here I, I have to mention the um, the – um, the efforts of the computer science team at UMass, they just cr- produced a software called Themis, or Themis, I should say. And Themis is the Greek god of justice. And what Themis does is it tests your algorithms to ensure that they aren't using race or age or gender or sexual orientation in their decision-making by simulating the decisions of the algorithm by taking out those different factors one at a time and seeing if that impacts uh, uh, the decisions. And so I could see a world in which that is um, a part of the evaluation of models before they're actually deployed and, and potentially regulated as well. So, Victor, you just mentioned underwriting, and certainly there are a lot of industries that are undergoing digital disruption, innovation, financial services is one of those. So in the next clip, principal analyst Ellen Carney explores the implications of both the empowered consumer and digital disruption. Customers, because of digital, have not only become empowered, they've become emboldened. And, you know, one of the first things that they're going to do when they get that rate increase, which is surely going to happen this year, this is going to be a pretty miserable year from a customer experience and rate increase perspective for auto and homeowners, um, they're going to go shopping. And digital has enabled a lot of transparency, which has basically turned automotive insurance or auto insurance um, and soon to be homeowners insurance into a commodity. So there's just lots and lots of shopping going on. It does feel like insurance is turning into kind of a turnstile. In our consumer techno product, we found that in the ages of 25 to 44, 52% of respondents plan to switch insurance companies in the near future. That's an alarming level of anticipated churn in a marketplace. Well, um, the interesting thing is they might be planning on um, churning. The unfortunate thing is, is that as soon as they go shopping for insurance, they're going to see everybody's rates have gone up. Um, That ends up being a really interesting situation for the role of the agent, because what an agent will do for a consumer is they'll shop that coverage. You know, they'll also be pretty upfront with them in terms of saying, hey, listen, you know, you're not going to get too much better uh, rate than what you're seeing right now for your auto insurance, but I'm going to shop that around for you. Insurance agencies, they are being uh, acquired by private equity firms because it's like software returns on investment. You know, the average profitability of an agency in the United States is 30% EBITDA. Um, and that's one of the reasons why even with all this digital, customers are frankly more loyal to their agents than they are to their spouses. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. It's true. Average <laughs> marriage that ends in divorce is eight years in the U.S. People stick with their agents for at least 10 years. So that makes sense to me. I've been married to my husband for about five years and with my agent for probably over 15 
Is that is that true for younger consumers? As a matter of fact, it is. So one of the things that younger consumers like is the fact that they want to deal with, you know, local businesses in their own community. Mm. And who is more local than the agent who ends up being part of the fabric of the community? The average uh, tenure of an auto insurance customer with their agents is 10.1 years, homeowners 10.4, and life insurance 13.2. So, Ellen, how do I wrestle with that? Because we are seeing more and more of the insurance companies attempting to go digital, and yet there's still an industry dependency on the agent. Are those two things sitting in opposition to each other? Are they consistent with each other? How do I wrestle with those two realities? Well, you bring up a really interesting point because, you know, what an agent has is a relationship. And one of the unfortunate things in our digital world with our insurance carriers is they've done a great job selling the coverage. They do a terrible job onboarding the customer and and establishing that relationship. For instance, only 12% of consumers who have recently bought auto insurance have even bothered to download the customer's mobile app. Very few actually get a welcome from their insurance company and honestly, even from their agents. So we do a very poor job onboarding and actually, you know, cementing the relationship after we've basically taken the customer's money. Um, Digital enables some of that, but we do a very poor job, as I said, with, you know, kind of striking the right tone about getting the customer to register for self-service, letting the customer know all the things that they can do to make their lives more convenient, you know, in terms of handling claims or paying their bills or adding coverage and things like that. So great job selling. We do a very poor job servicing customers. You know, it's interesting. At the same time, insurers are reimagining their business in terms of underwriting, in terms of risk assessments, and in terms of real-time policy sort of serving mobility. Banks, if they're not careful, may become unintentional utilities because their retail relationship would be taken by others. So Peter Wanamaker talks a little bit about the fractured banking model and the possible future of some banks that are not responding to the market dynamics. Here's Peter. So one of the things that strikes me is that it might be true that there's a natural weighting of the in-person relationship, but in this generation, there's an appreciation for digital capabilities that's very different than other generations. So that there's a, you, can, you can imagine an opportunity where if they were to provide sort of enhanced and persistent digital experiences that were high value, that's something that there's a vacuum in the market on and they could fill that vacuum. Absolutely. Someone, I'll put it this way, this is not that bold a prediction, someone will fill that vacuum. The question is, which companies will it be? And I'll say something here about AI. There's been a lot of conversation about AI and and algorithms in banking and financial services. When you talk about algorithms, the first example many people use is Google Maps, right? Google Maps was the first time that humans, everyday Joes and Jills, started to trust an algorithm more than they trusted other people, right? I, I can be talking to someone, they say, oh, I, I can tell you how to get to Kentucky Fried Chicken. And then you say, no, I, I don't need your help. I got my phone here. Um, why would that not be true down the road for relatively straightforward financial decisions? This is what robo-advisors are based on. I think there is good reason for executives of financial services companies to fear a day not too far down the road where someone in 10 years, 15 years is walking down the road and legitimately thinks to his or herself, what's a bank for again? And as you said earlier, they don't cease to exist, right? They are not blockbuster. Instead, they are behind the scenes. They are not the company that a customer trusts to make their next financial decision. Yeah, I think one of the common themes is that you're looking at a a 
pacing in the market that what is possible and what is probable is changing at a breakneck pace mm -hmm. because it was sort of improbable that robo-advisors would be a big deal or a big threat, but that became quite probable. Now we're in a place, is, is it possible that people would want to interact with a bank this way? And we're going to quickly turn to what oh, is probable and banks have to respond to that kind of speed to that. That's right. And the answer, not for everything, is, is a correct one, right? It'll be decades or maybe never before they say, I only want to trust algorithms. That's irrelevant if who they start to trust is that company that provides them with that. That's what Betterment is built around, is yeah. Betterment wants to say, we can offer you the really easy stuff right now, and then we can help you with a hybrid approach down the road. If Betterment and Wealthfront both fail tomorrow, no executive at a wealth management company or a bank can rest easy that night. It'll be similar to when Napster, right, was defeated in court. That wasn't the end of their woes, right? That was a signal that the market was changing as we've talked about. You're also talking about a market condition where the generation that is most likely to experiment, most likely to be receptive to these kinds of offerings, and about to acquire a whole bunch of wealth is in the same segment. I mean, that's the that's dangerous right. part, which is that's the grand movement of money. And is just entering the stages of their lives, and is multiple stages, where they are most in need of financial services, products, and solutions. Exploiting technology is not simply that it's being made available. It's the idea that the IT organization, the CIO and the IT organization need to work differently. And I think the opportunities are ample for them to team with business to actually become part of the way products are built and delivered and part of the way that they interpret customers and deliver experiences. And Rob Stroud and Brian Hopkins talked about sort of the future of the CIO and IT and what, is that, what does that mean organizationally to fully exploit these technologies? Yeah, so it's really uh, an interesting state of play that we're in in the market today. Business today has to go fast. They have no choice. They're being disrupted everywhere. And we all think it's as easy as going and using a cloud service or just adopting a new technology, and that's what we've been used to. But actually, it's not true. It's really about a people, process, and culture change. And we have to change all those aspects. And if we don't, we're never going to get velocity, which is the term we use in the industry, of course. But uh, we just want to go fast. We want to deliver new features and functions because let's face it, uh, I don't want to wait for my package to deliver. I just want it to turn up. Right. You want the outcome. I want the, the results. I yep. don't want the pain. So in the concept of continuous delivery has a lot of its heritage in product management. The idea that if I'm running a product, a digital product, there's an expectation, there's a constant refreshment of that product, a dot release, there's a constant debugging, whether I'm thinking of it as a minimally viable product or what have you. It's just out there and evolving on a persistent basis. That's sort of the origin of continuous delivery. That's exactly right. The The origin of continuous delivery is the fact that if you think about the psychology of just the way we absorb things and the way we're even taught in school, it's far easier to learn in small increments and build on them all the time. The same is true in using technology. If we can add small incremental pieces constantly, we actually solve the problem of you know, deep learning and deep education and deep documentation because people can pick up that uh, new feature or function that we're delivering and use it quite simply. And the other aspect of it is becoming very user-centric in the way we deliver things. And what do I mean by user-centric? If you need to read an instruction book, you failed. If you cannot look at a, a you know, a screen on your, your uh, iPad or your iPhone and immediately use it and be profitable, I know about me, I delete it. And that's kind of the, the gold standard now for what we have to deliver. The model that 
has existed and probably still exists for many is that the IT organization is a distinct thing and the product organization is a distinct thing. And they might meet, you know, they might have interfaces, they might have relationship managers that go between them, but they're distinct. But your argument is that it's one organism because the, the underlying technology infrastructure, the business technology that's within the firm is, is delivering these experiences, which is what's bringing the brand and bringing the value to the customers flowing in and out. Exactly. And what we see today is that you can have separate business relationship managers and separate product teams and separate IT teams. And then you've got an issue of translation. They're all speaking different words and different languages. So what we see organizations who are really getting into continuous delivery do is merge those people into one team. Now, we in the industry call it two pizza teams. You know, how, how many people can feed two pizzas? Well, you know, I can eat one of my own. So, you know, <laughs> maybe we need three pizzas. But uh, the reality of it is you're putting the product owner, often the business person in that team, you're putting that with your developers and you're also putting it with people who are going to understand how to deploy that technology as well and leverage it and use it. And what you create is a, a mini ecosystem. You know, coming out of all of these conversations, obviously innovation is easier said than done. In principal analyst Brian Hopkins discusses what changes are required to become a digital first organization. Here's Brian. So, Brian, one of the issues we're facing right now is that the pace of operations mm -hmm. and organizational design is in stark contrast to the pace of technology innovation and adoption. Mm -hmm. So how do we think of a company five years from now? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's what we were talking about earlier. It's, it's um, the way company corporate success, stock price, public companies is measured today is kind of the same as it's always been measured. Yeah. Right. Which means we have to go through these quarterly and annual uh, meetings on, with the street have you made money, you know, all those measures. And then <clears throat> the problem is, is that requires kind of this, this budgeting and planning cycle that runs smack up against the fact that your business may decide next quarter that it needs to build a new competency to compete. that takes you in a totally different direction from where you've planned and invested for the last two or three years. Right. And where you've been telling the street you're going. Yeah. Right. And then all of a sudden you don't need to be going that direction. You need to be going another direction. And, you know, eventually, uh, <laughs> your investors don't believe you anymore. I mean, they're, you know, like for instance, take a look at what's going on with GE right now, right? Eventually they say, you know, enough, we got to return to profitability right. and return on capital. And they restrain it. So the question, you know, on the GE question is, does it, they restrain it because they need to survive for the next couple of years or please the investors mm -hmm. or does it thwart or defer the advancements being made? I mean, that's maybe not just a st specific GE question, but a question for anyone who's going through major digital upheaval well, and yeah, it is, yeah. it, it's got to be financially disruptive for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be a lot of bets lost. I mean, that's the basic oh, yeah. premise of fail, but fail fast is there's a lot of losing bets out there. Well, I mean, I think the best example of that is some of the things that we see going on right now in, in the manufacturing space, right? The GE was certainly the first out of the block to say, look, we're going to build a software platform. We're going to become digital. We're become a software business. I think what they're finding is what other firms in the space, Siemens and Bosch, you know, they're going to find this out as well is, making money as a software business is completely different from making money as a manufacturing business. The metrics are different. You have to uh, now sell kind of in a SaaS model. Um, there's all these things that, that are very different and it requires a different set of leadership skills, a different board, a different uh, willingness to take risks on technology, a different way to, to report yourself out to the street, a whole different set of metrics if you're a SaaS business. And I think that what we're seeing is a lot of these companies who say, well, 
this making widgets anymore isn't as profitable as I need to be to keep my stock price up. I'm going to become a software business. I'm going to build a platform. And then what these firms are finding out is, eh, their customers don't really want platforms. They want solutions and they want them now. The platform piece kind of comes in as a second component to, hey, once I've built one solution, I can build another one if I have a platform. But right now they're, they're kind of in this spot of let's learn how to be a software business. Let's make a bet on a platform. Oh, companies don't really want platforms. They want solutions. How do we sell solutions? And there's going to be a lot of stub toes and failures and a couple successes. So we've talked about the impact to internal strategies and internal operations. Yet these changes are affecting markets all in. And probably the hardest hit is that of advertising and MarTech, both because of the expectations of customers, the prominence of experiences or CX and moving the budget, but also from a very pragmatic standpoint, the implications of GDPR and the heightened sensitivity towards privacy. So we have James McQuivy and Keith Johnston, followed by Joe Stanhope, talking about how these two markets will evolve sort of in tune with the changing external environment. Yeah, I think there's a point here, which is that this issue of scale and one-to-many, sort of that the prevailing wisdom is that you're going to have a one-to-many mass market approach towards advertising. And essentially, marketing and advertising grew up around that belief system. And one of the simple things that is, you know, far-reaching and disruptive is now we're going to be one-to-one and we are going to be able to scale one-to-one. But that's a fundamental different way of thinking about it doing it, the skills, the technologies, all there's a lot in motion moving from one-to-many and looking at scale as a premium and one-to-one looking at engagement and the quality engagement as a premium. Yeah, and, you know, the customer has decided that it's going to be a one-to-me. You know, they have a set of preferences that they want to control and they want to have a relationship with the brands that they want to interact with. And so in that situation, you literally have a an opportunity uh, to connect with the customer if you've gotten permission and have a really meaningful relationship. But if you're not in their world, they will just decide not to be in a relationship with you. You mean in their world, meaning you understand their terms, their preferences, and the context to which they are at that moment. Without that's, a that's, doubt. That's their world. Without a doubt. Which is a slightly more complicated thing than just saying, it's already a big enough deal to say we're now going one-to-one or one-to-me. But it's, as we've been saying now for a couple of years, it's about me in my moments of need. And those moments change uh, fluidly so that 15 minutes from now, I'll have a different set of needs than I do now. And 15 minutes hence, yet another set of needs. And there will be patterns to those needs, but you've got to know what those patterns are. And so great that artificial intelligence is going to be a panacea that will solve all this, right? But it won't uh, unless you have access to me. And I already trust you to be a guardian of that information about me. Basically, what we're saying is that the brands could potentially be disintermediated from the consumer because they're not in control anymore. My prediction, you're going to have a small number of brands that will become the mega persistent brands in your life. uh, And then a whole bunch of brands that will become tier two, tier three. So knowing that a channel specific MarTech structure or technology dedicated to specific channels is not necessarily a direction we want to go in the future. How should marketing executives or marketers using that technology think or, you know, what is an organizing principle that they should be using to think of what that structure should be in the future? Yeah, and that's where it gets hard. 
we wish there was a singular, consistent, magical answer to this, and, and there isn't one. And, and it's because different brands obviously have different needs or in different industries, different geographies, different regulatory situations, mm-hmm. different levels of uh, maturity. Um, and yet marketers can't stand still, right? Uh, I, I, sometimes I call them sharks. They always have to be moving. And uh, that's because they have these, these very sophisticated, uh, entitled, empowered consumers saying, give me amazing experiences and engagement uh, that I expect or I'll find someone who will. And, of course, on the other hand, marketers have uh, a CEO and a board of directors saying, we need marketing to help drive this business forward and we need results for marketing. There isn't a free pass internally for marketing anymore either. One of the things you said that was interesting was this emphasis on experiences, because one of the dynamics that has been underway for the last several years is, in many cases, the CMO and the marketer has taken a broader role within the enterprise, which is to to govern the experiences delivered to the customer, meaning marketing is not simply about customer acquisition, but increasingly about the delivery of services, the delivery of experiences for retention and loyalty and those types of things. So how much of it is that you, you have this expansion of remit to the marketers and their thinking of technology has to go well beyond simply the acquisition point? Well, it certainly increases the complexity and raises the bar. I think it's driven by what consumers expect. But when the remit of marketing expands or the expectations of collaboration across the enterprise expand, Essentially, everything becomes an opportunity for marketing. Everything is customer engagement. In yeah. service, at the call center, uh, a, a thank you receipt. Yeah. A, Every um, touch point, right? An, an email, yeah. uh, the social interaction in the store, on the kiosk. Everything is an opportunity to engage. It doesn't necessarily have to be promotional, but everything is an engagement opportunity. And it's far more than acquisition or building a brand. We talked a lot about GDPR this past year. One of the things that comes to light in thinking about that regulation is data and recognizing that data is both fuel, currency for an organization, but has inherent risk in how you use it and govern it. Yeah, I think the focus right now on responding to cyber risk and responding to either the regulatory environment of GDPR or simply the consumer's demand for privacy, especially now as we air this with the concerns around Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, which is, I think, there's a premium on managing data to respond to risk. The second part is to, at the same time, manage or govern data to deliver value to customers and drive growth, which are, you know, two sides of the same coin. They both require governance with very different outcomes. So we'll go through with Fatima Katablu and then Jeff Haller talking about the security risk and how data plays a central role in that. And the third one was Jennifer Billisant, which again is the flip side of the coin, which is how are companies mining data for value, and in some cases, pricing data? So we're at a place in time right now, Fatima, where if you look at it from a number of different vectors, you have a new technology revolution introducing technologies like Internet of Things, which is more systems collecting and applying customer data. You have the emergence of digital platforms to which the customer data itself operates as a necessary currency of those platforms. You have a hyper risk of, of cybersecurity, which we went through with Jeff Pollard last week. And in comes this privacy, small little set of tasks. So as you sit back and look at sort of the consequence of this, what does it all mean to you? 
The big thing that I'm thinking about now is how do you design your data collection practices um, to be compliant with GDPR? And there's a term and a, and a practice called privacy by design. And it's one of the things that companies have to start embracing. And that means that as you think about your IoT strategy, it means as you think about your um, your systems of insight, that every single vendor that you work with or, or data collection strategy or, or algorithm that you write, every single one of these things has to be designed with privacy in mind. And that's a big sea change for most companies. So putting somebody you know, in place in your organization, a data protection officer is what the EU regulators recommend, um, putting somebody in place that has the responsibility and has some enforcement authority within your organization to say, we are okay to do this, we are not okay to do that. Really, really important and one of the, the, the big sort of whims for me. Um, it's a, as I say, it's a big sea change for most companies to think about privacy early in their innovation processes as opposed to going to their security guys or their lawyers and saying, look at this cool thing we've designed, it's okay, right? Um, so that's a real big takeaway for me. It doesn't take much to be globally disruptive uh, to business, to nation states, even from a cyber terror perspective. And it is truly asymmetric to your point. You don't need a massive force in order to ultimately reuse, in this case, an attack tool in a way that it was not initially designed. I think why that matters so much for organizations as they look at their overall threat model, as they look at their overall risk posture, is that you ultimately have to understand what you're planning for. And you need to understand that the type of threats that you might be preparing for don't necessarily match you as an organization. In other words, you can be disrupted by an entity much smaller than you are. And that's part of the reason why it's so important for organizations to prepare what we call the digital extortion decision tree, which is where you figure out what you would do in a situation if you were held really hostage at the mercy of ransomware. So essentially making the assumption that you will be, it's a matter of when and how badly. Absolutely right. And in this case, the organizations that were targeted by this are happenstance, right? This was not a campaign to infect the NHS or various ATMs or some of the other companies out there that have confirmed that they've been affected by it. This was an opportunity for this threat actor, at least it appears to be until we know more, to make money. They, they wanted to monetize this particular attack tool created by someone else to, to get paid for it. Unfortunately, what we've now seen is that, it, you know, Regardless of what their initial intentions were, it was able to spread around the world in less than a day. It also does make you wonder, in the situation where someone actually wants to attack you in order to do you harm, which we saw in uh, South Korea a few years ago when a particular piece of malware was written called Wiper that actually began to wipe ATM systems, when an organization decides with intent to actually attack you and do you harm, that frankly is even more concerning. In this case, everyone breached might be a side effect of a monetization effort by an attack tool author, but there are absolutely cases where this has been done with the intent to do harm, and you can see the implications of each one of those. If this is how bad an accidental infection could be, imagine how bad a purposeful infection could be. 
How do firms start thinking of pricing data, whereas before it was valuable for insights, but now it's valuable for revenue? So, Victor, that's actually a really good question, and that's what I get a lot. What's my, what's my data worth? How do I value my data? Um, and I usually start an answer with a quote from Thomas Edison. He said, the value of an idea lies in the using of it. To me, the same with data. The value of data really is essentially what you do with it. It's context-based. Um, and so when we go through an exercise with a, a, a client, We'll start by asking them, what are the use cases for that particular data set? How can that data be used, and how could someone derive value from it? Um, and so it's really an outside-in approach. It's understanding what that use case is and then backing into um, a value. And sometimes it requires actually working with a customer, um, really more of a collaborative effort with a customer, co-creation effort to build the product or service and, and test what type of value can be derived from it. Um, so we've seen a lot, a lot of examples there. Honeywell works with its customers to, uh, across a, a supply chain customers, to understand how they can better use the data. And then from that work with the customers have built out specific products and services. Um, similarly, Siemens is uh, collecting data off of all of their, you know, everything having to do with railroads and trains. They've um, embedded sensors in railroad crossings and the locomotives, and they're e even doing text analytics of the radio transmissions. Um, but the way that they're monetizing that or commercializing it is by providing these insight services out to their customers and really understanding how the, their customers are able to either reduce their costs or generate new revenues. Um, and so it's working from that outside in, that outside use case back in um, and deriving the value in that way. So Victor, we just ran through a dozen or more episodes. For executives out there listening to this particular episode, what does it mean to them? Yeah, we had a predictions report we put out in the marketplace in December of last year. We talked about 2018 being a year of reckoning. Mm -hmm. What that really meant was this sort of confluence of dynamics of customers and digital is gaining steam. And it's driving risk, in some cases driving companies out of business. And I do think that there has been a, a time and place in the market where there was this hope that companies could do little things, work around the edges to sort of solve for this, and then it would sort of either normalize itself or go away. And I think what we're finding is it's going to get harder. And now I think a lot of executives are at this juncture where they have to decide what is the true nature of their company going forward, and once they solve for that, what does that mean strategically, operationally, technically, organizationally, and otherwise? There's a lot of the big decisions looming about the very nature of what a company is. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.